You're listening to a curated podcast from the Beyond Infinity radio program broadcast live on Tuesdays from 11am from our Mornington studios in Victoria, Australia. Presented by me, Piers Cunningham. And me, John Young. So we have Dr. Tony Hayes. He's a retired scientist who's worked both in physics and psychology. He is the inventor and the holder of a patent for the reverse parking sensor for cars. He happens to be legally blind and came out to Australia to work as R&D manager for the Guide Dog Association. That's back in the 1980s. He also, prior to that, attended Cambridge University in the 1960s with none other than Stephen Hawking. You can hear him speaking already. There's two podcasts we've done with him last year. One is called Our Plastic Brains, where he talks about neuroplasticity and how the brain can adapt to trauma or overcome disability. And the first podcast we did with Tony was where he outlined his career from study at Cambridge with Hawking and how myopia led to his invention of the parking sensor through to the philosophy of science and what Australia must do to become a nation of innovators. And the philosophy of science is what Tony's going to be talking with us about today. Tony, welcome to the program. Good to have you back here. Well, thank you very much. I call my talk Our Changing View of Reality, a Scientific Perspective. We live in a world of solid objects. However, if you ask a scientist, you get a very different answer. She will tell you that the distance between atoms is very large. In fact, the atom itself is made mainly of space. The world is not made of solid objects. There's an American philosopher called Wilfred Sillers, and he makes the distinction between these two worldviews. He talks about the manifest world, the world of solid objects, and the scientific world. And these two worlds are incommensurate That's a very long word, which actually means that they don't fit together. And he tries to persuade us that we should not feel too uncomfortable about this. We can accept these two different worldviews. I'm hoping by the end of this talk, you'll be comfortable about accepting many more incommensurate worldviews. Now, I'm not a philosopher. I'm a hands-on scientist. I can change a light bulb and I can start a car with a flat battery. Most people, I believe, subscribe to the common-sense view of science. And for 300 years, this was perfectly reasonable. From the time of Galileo right to the time of Max Planck. Galileo in the the 16th century, Max Planck at the turn of of the 20th century. It was no problem. There wasn't a thing called the philosophy of science. It was very clear what science was all about. It was experimental. It was progressive. And it was building an understanding of the external real world. It was reductionist and it was founded on Newtonian mechanics. Isaac Newton had lived between the 17th and 18th century and he produced a system of thought which formed the basis of the common sense view. Now, in order to explain why we have to move from that, I'm going to talk about what, what was believed before the common sense view, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about the common sense view, and then explain why we had to replace it, why we had to give up on the common sense view. Before the common sense view as science, pre-science, knowledge was dogma, and it was really based on the Greeks, and Aristotle was the main person involved. He divided the components of the world of the universe into four components fire 
air, water and earth. If you dropped an object, it was an earthly nature and its home was the earth and therefore it fell to the earth. This view of the world was rational. Of course, a two kilogram weight would fall to the earth twice as fast as a one kilogram weight. And the odd thing is nobody bothered to try. Not until Galileo, of course. And it was found not to be true. There were experimentalists. Aristarchus and Aristosthenes, together, 300 years before Christ, not only measured the radius of the Earth, they measured the distance to the Moon, the size of the Moon, and even the distance to the Sun. Now, the last one they got rather wrong. They weren't very accurate, but at least they had a go. But as for the radius of the Earth and the distance to the Moon, they were very, very accurate indeed with what they did. And in fact, it's very interesting to find out how they do it. It's a little bit like a conjuring trick. Once you found out how they do it, it's so obvious. And yet before, it requires a genius to think of it. And of course, Ptolemy. Ptolemy was a Greek. He lived in Egypt, but in that time... Uh, the Greek Empire spread to Egypt. He invented a system to describe the solar system, which of course had the Earth in the middle and the Sun, all the planets going round the Earth. And then in the distance, there was the celestial sphere, which held the stars. The Greek learning was lost during the Dark Ages, but it was taken over by the Arabs. They added to it. And in the 12th and 13th century, the Arabs occupied the southern part of Spain and the intellectuals of Europe were flocking to sit at the feet of the Arabs to learn all about this Greek science and the Arab science, the medicine, the physics, the architecture. And what I find interesting is that this very time, this was the time of the Crusades. So whereas the intellectuals of Europe were flocking to learn from the Arabs to southern Spain, the, uh, the hotheads and the red-blooded Europeans were off to Palestine to fight the Arabs in terms of the Crusades. Well, this Greek and Arab thought was synthesized with Christian teaching by Thomas Aquinas. He was a 13th century Catholic who managed to absorb this learning into church dogma. And it remained the church dogma until the foundations began to shake. Nicholas Copernicus started to shake the foundations. He proposed a view of the solar system which had the sun at the middle and the planets going round the suns in circles. Johannes Kepler pointed out that these circles didn't really fit the observations and he proposed ellipses. Giordano Bruno had the temerity to suggest that the stars probably had their own planetary systems. They were probably at a huge distance away. We couldn't see the planets. There were probably planets going around them and there would be life on these planets. This was very much against church teachings and he ended up being burnt at the stake. Galileo, of course, was the father of modern science. So a little bit more about Galileo. But he was an experimentalist. He is well known for having dropped the two weights from the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And you know, that two kilogram weight and that one kilogram weight hit the ground at exactly the same time. And that was very much against Aristotle. The church was very much 
resistant to all these new ideas. However, science flourished in Protestant Europe. Now, Galileo, in addition to doing these experiments, he is famous as being the father of modern science in that he described motion as a subject on its own. Prior to Galileo, people had described the motion of cannonballs, the motion of weights, the motion of this and the motion of that, as if the motion was a property of the object being described. Galileo separated it out and described motion per se. He described colors, he described light. He broke the world up into its various components and started to describe them. Newton came along and added an awful lot of mathematics to it. He had the Newton's laws, uh, the motion of objects, and Laplace had this mechanical worldview where he reckoned that everything could be predicted for the future if you knew the motion and position of all the particles in the world, you could predict the future. Everything was mechanical, a mechanical world. People were interested in how science worked. The philosophers got involved. Francis Bacon had this scientific method. His method was that you collect the facts. When you get a lot of facts, you begin to induce the laws of nature from the facts. You look for patterns. You go from the singularity of individual facts to general statements. This is induction. This is not the same as deduction, where you work out the consequences of certain statements. Induction is when you form your idea based on a number of observations. Let's have a few definitions. A hypothesis is something that scientists have when they have an idea. It might be over a beer or it might be over a coffee. They think of something. Let's give it a try. Theory, however, in scientific terminology is very different from the way the word theory is used in the law or in a television series about crime. A theory in science is a well-established principle which describes certain phenomena. It has been researched, it has passed the tests, and it is thoroughly established. The laws of science are really mathematical expressions, shorthands for the theory. Now let's look at induction. Induction is a problem. And the problem was highlighted by the Scottish philosopher David Hume in the 18th century. David Hume pointed out that the principle of induction works successfully on occasion number one. The principle of induction works successfully on occasion number two. The principle of induction worked on successfully on occasion number three. Conclusion, the principle of induction always works. However, Hume pointed out that this, in fact, was an inductive argument. In other words, it's a circular argument. You can't be absolutely sure that the principle of induction is always going to work. Now, Bertrand Russell, the famous 20th century English philosopher, had this wonderful way of illustrating this. He described the inductive turkey. A turkey lived on a farm every morning, Soon after sunrise, the turkey got fed. It didn't matter whether it was a day of the week or the weekend, whether the sun was shining or whether it was raining. He was an inductive turkey, and he decided on the basis of this experience that this was the way the world worked. Every morning you got fed. And of course, come Christmas Eve, 
He got his throat cut, and of course that was the end of the inductive turkey. He got it wrong. John Locke, another British philosopher in the 17th century, he suggested that there was no such thing as sound. You know, there was vibrations in the air, but it only became sound if there was someone there to hear it. It's an interesting sort of point. Likewise, there was no such thing as colour. Colour was a, an attribute of an object, but it required perception. It required somebody to perceive colour before colour became real. Bishop George Bertley even suggested that familiar objects like tables and chairs were only ideas in the minds of the perceivers, and the result do not exist without being perceived. People enjoyed teasing this idea, and there's a very famous limerick. It's called God in the Quad. There was a young man who said God must find it exceedingly odd to think that a tree should continue to be when there's no one about in the quad. And then there's an answer. Dear sir, your astonishment's odd. I'm always about in the quad. And that's why a tree will continue to be since observed by your sincerely God. Now, of course, there's more modern views of this. And one modern view is if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one around to hear it, does it make a sound? And the one that I particularly like, if a man speaks his mind in the forest and there's no woman around to hear it, is he still wrong? It's fun to make and have a giggle at, 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 at Bishop Bertley. But, do you know, these ideas are not a million miles from what we now call the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum theory. The need for a perceiver, a need for an observer. The Copenhagen theory had its own detractors. Remember the Schrodinger's cat, which is both dead and alive at the same time. However, one more philosopher, and then we'll get on to real science. Immanuel Kant, in the 18th century, pointed out, and this is highly significant, that the only things we have to go on are sense experience. Anything else we use to account for these experiences is a man-made construction. Let's do that again because it's so important. The only thing that we have to go on are our sense experiences. Anything we use to account for those experiences is a man-made construction. Of course, the senses can be extended by using microscopes, telescopes, and things like that. Thanks for listening. And head to beyondinfinity.com.au for the best bits from the live show or to connect with us on social media. We welcome your feedback and suggestion for future shows.